right. Well, hey, everybody, and welcome to uh, Life in This Week, where I'm going to be taking your questions. You know, I realized just the other day as I was, as I was riding my bike that uh, the summer was over. I went back to school yesterday on Thursday and realized that one of my favorite parts of the summer did not happen this summer. And uh, and that is going to summer camps, going to retreats, having a chance to sit down with students and answer their questions, do my best to respond to the questions that students have. And so as I was realizing this and talking with some, with some youth pastors, uh, wanted to have the chance to have a live Q&A aimed at students to help students think deeply about Christianity and to hopefully do my best to respond to some of the questions that you have. Now, I was having a few technical difficulties, but it looks like things are working, and so we are going to jump in. Um, So yeah, if you want to start posting your uh, questions uh, in the live chat, I would love to try to get to those, or I will get to those, and I would love to do my best to try and respond to the questions that you have, as well as uh, I'm going to start off, and I'm going to share about a conversation that I had just the other day, uh, a couple, maybe about a week ago or so, on YouTube, based on one of my videos, my video on morality with Dr. Greg Gansel uh, with an atheist, and I think he brought up some really good stuff, so I'm going to get to that, uh, all in a hope to to help give you a better understanding understanding of what Christianity teaches, of help to respond to the questions that you have. And again, my name is Ryan Pauly. And generally, if you are new to my show, I generally have an expert, uh, someone on who is an expert in something related to the Christian worldview, where I interview them to help get a better understanding of what Christianity teaches, as well as give you the opportunity to interact with those people, to learn from them, and to ask your questions. So it's a good time. Uh, There's someone different every week normally. And so this week, you're getting me uh, doing a little Q&A because I didn't get a chance to sit down and do a Q&A with students this summer. And so I wanted to take the chance to do it with you guys tonight. So hopefully you guys got some good questions. You're bringing those in. I got a few that came in on Instagram as well as the YouTube channel. Uh, but I'm gonna start off with just a quick uh, few comments on a conversation that I had with an atheist objecting to my video that I put out. His main objection was this. Uh, he was asking the question, look, you just put out this whole video where you're talking about morality and what is right and wrong. Could you please define wrong for me? Now, I think this is actually a really good question, and it's something that I teach all the time. I just had Greg Kokel on my show not too long ago where he talked about the tactical approach. And the first one is, what do you mean by that? And hopefully we should be asking this to other people. What do you mean by the words that you're using? Help them define their terms. But sometimes it gets asked back to us. And so he kept saying, you're using the word wrong. What do you mean by that word? And it's kind of like, you know, the, 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 the good movie, The Princess Bride. I'm sure most of you have seen this, right? You keep using that word. I don't think it means what you think it means. Uh, I don't think you know what it means or it may go as well. Uh, but that's what we're talking about is we want to make sure that we are using words that we know what they mean and we can define them and help people understand what we mean by them. So he was challenging me of how do you use the word wrong? What do I use wrong to describe? So in short, uh, my answer was, well, I use wrong to describe things that are immoral. (laughs) That might seem kind of weird, but let me explain. Well, so here's, wrong has two definitions. I call something that is immoral. You can say that action is wrong or something that is not true. We can also use the word wrong to describe something that is not true. Well, now that makes us have to understand if wrong is describing immoral, and false or not true, we have to understand what true and moral is, right? So truth, by what most people would describe is truth is that which corresponds to reality. So if you say that something is, and it is, you made a true statement. If you say that something isn't, and it isn't, that would be true. 
For example, my water bottle is in my hand. Well, guess what? It is in my hand, so what I said was true. Uh, but if I said my water bottle right now is on the table, it isn't on the table, that's false, right? That would be the correspondence theory of truth. And so if what you say corresponds to reality, that is true. And so if you're saying something is wrong, you're saying that is not true, it is false. But the video was talking about morality. And so I said I use the word wrong to describe things that are immoral that are not moral. Well, then how do we define moral? Well, morality is grounded in the nature of God. Now, this is where then he presented the objection to once I described, okay, morality is that which aligns with God's nature. Immoral goes against God's nature, against God's original design. Therefore, I say that's wrong because it's going against God's nature. And he raised, in a slightly different way, the euthyphro dilemma. And the euthyphro dilemma goes like this. I don't know if you've heard it or maybe some variation of it, but it goes like this. It says, um, does God command things because they are good? As in there's a standard outside of God for goodness, and this thing is good outside of God, therefore he commands it. Or, and that would make God arbitrary because the standard is above him or outside of him. Or does God command something and therefore it is good? Does his commanding of it make it good? And therefore, could God command anything and make it good? This is called the euthyphro dilemma. And this is presented like thousands of years, years ago with Plato in this thing that he wrote back in like the time of Plato and Aristotle. Now, the reason why you can say this has been debunked is a true dilemma only has two options. Either God commands it because there's a standard outside of him because the thing is good, or God commands it and that makes it good presents these two options. The reason why this dilemma is not a dilemma is because there's another option of something is good because God is good. God's nature is the standard. It's not above him and it can't make he can't make it whatever he wants. There's a third option to this dilemma. Now, this is where the atheist I thought had a really good response. And then he says, well, but what if, if you say God's nature is good, what if God's nature is rape? Then by your own definition, that would have to be good. Now, what would you say to that? That's a difficult one. But here's where I think this is actually, and what I tried to explain to him is what I actually think is logically absurd to say God's nature could be rape or what if God's nature is murder then well if his nature is the standard of goodness then that would be good that's not the way it works and that question actually is logically absurd let me explain well first God has essential attributes things that define him like he is essentially good he is essentially loving he's essentially kind and merciful and just these are who God is, and these are the things that we have that define or describe God or how God has revealed himself to us. Rape, the example the atheist was using, goes against all of those. It's not kind. It's not loving. It's not compassionate. It goes against all of those, and rape goes against God's nature, and it would be bad. Now, the way that I tried to explain it to him, and I tried to make it very simple, is this. We use words to describe certain realities. Uh, we use, uh, I mean, that's how language works. We use, you know, phone. Well, what is a phone? Well, you, once you, you know, this is the thing that I'm using the word to describe. Well, it's like saying a bachelor. Well, what is a bachelor? Well, a bachelor is a, uh, a, you know, someone who's not married. Well, what is someone married? Well, someone who has a spouse. So therefore, if you try to say, well, what if I found a married bachelor? 
Are you guys going to go look for one? You're going to go look for that married bachelor? Of course not. You can't have a married bachelor because if you're married, you're not a bachelor. And if you're a bachelor, you're not married. Or again, other logical contradictions, logically absurd things of, of saying like, well, I know a triangle by definition has three sides, but what if, what if I found a square triangle or square circle? Well, you can't have a square circle. A square circle by definition is round. A square by definition has four sides. Now, if you want to start calling the four sided, that's not supposed to be round. That's supposed to be four sides. Let's just make it round. If you want to start calling this round shape a square, well, now you can start changing language and we can maybe agree on some new words and new definitions as language evolves, but we're talking about the same thing. You can't have an actual square circle. And so we understand the word circle is used to describe the round object. Well, God is used to describe the being whose nature is essentially this. God's nature is not changeable. It's an unchanging nature. His nature cannot be murder. His nature cannot be rape. That's like saying a circle can have four, four sides. No, it can't. The moment you take a circle and you try to give it four sides, it's no longer a circle. It's a square. The moment you try and take God an essentially good being and make his nature rape or murder or something bad, you're no longer talking about the same God. And so to try and say, what if God's nature is rape? That's like saying, well, what if the circle has four sides? What if the bachelor is married? What if the stick only has one end? You know, you can't have a one-ended stick. Sticks always have two ends. If it only has one end, it's still connected to the tree and it's a branch. I think hopefully I'm making this point clear. And so I think this is a, a very simple way for us to recognize from the Christian perspective, right? The atheist was asking me, a Christian, how do I use the word wrong? I use the word wrong to describe things that are immoral. And things that are immoral go against God's nature. His nature is the standard of morality. God is good. And his nature can't be these bad things because his nature, by definition, are these essential attributes that God has revealed himself to us to be. Now, if someone wants to claim, well, well, what if there is a God, but he's not the God you think? Okay, that's a fair point. It's possible I could be wrong on my view of God. But I get my view of God from Scripture, and Scripture is the Word of God and God's revelation to us. So now we have to take a step back and go, okay, is there a good reason to distrust Scripture or to think that the passages in Scripture to where God is revealing himself to us as a good, loving, kind, compassionate, just, merciful God, that we got that wrong and that God is actually someone different. Now, obviously, I think there are good reasons to trust Scripture. I think there are good reasons to trust the Bible. I think it's good reason to believe that that is God's true revelation to us, that God is an essentially a good God in his very nature. Therefore, our standard of morality and goodness is grounded in his nature. Anything that goes against God's nature is immoral and his nature could not have been rape or murder, just like a square cannot be round and a bachelor cannot be married. That would turn into a logical absurdity. So I felt like this was a really good question from the atheist to say define morality. And I think that's something we don't do oftentimes. And it's something that's very confusing in culture. And hopefully if you're students and you're watching, you recognize that some Christians call this thing wrong, but our culture calls it right. And we are in constant disagreement on what is wrong versus what is right. And what is the standard? And what we see is that if we don't have God 
as a standard of morality, then it simply becomes opinion. I had this conversation on my channel as well, and I'm almost done. So again, start sending in those questions. Those of you who have joined and watching, thank you so much. And I want to get to your questions here in a moment. But I once had a person who commented on my video with Christopher Yuan about homosexuality. And they said, your view makes no sense. What you're saying is straight people can get married and have sex, but gays can't. That's just ridiculous. You should be able to love whoever you want and you should kind of like, we should have this freedom sexually. And I said, so are you saying, so again, I'm using kind of Columbo questions. Are you saying, I wanna make sure I understand their point. Are you saying that there should be no restrictions whatsoever on sexual activity? And then they said, well, as long as you're not hurting anybody and as long as you have consent, then it should be okay. Well, now you just put two restrictions. Who says you can't hurt someone? And who says you have to have consent? What if someone doesn't want to consent? Or is that just your opinion? That something you just think should be the way? Or is that somewhere that should actually be that way? And they responded. I don't remember what the response was. And I said, okay, well, what about incest? Family members? Well, of course not family members. You can't be related. Well, that's another restriction. I said, what about older men with young girls? Well, no, you have to be of a certain age. That's another restriction. So here's what we often see is that almost everyone has restrictions that they put on sexual activity. You have to not be related and you have to be a certain age and you have to consent and you, you know, you know, all these sort of things. And then you go, well, why those? Are you, you just have these arbitrary restrictions that you have created. Why those restrictions? And it's, it comes down to, well, that's just what I think, or that's what our culture has agreed upon. But if our culture changes their mind, well, then the restrictions change. This is like having, you know, a game like, you know, a, a, a Monopoly. Another good question. If you watch the show, you've probably heard this. me say this is, is, is marriage or is morality? Is it like gravity or is it like Monopoly? Is it like a game where we sit around and we kind of make house rules on how we're going to play and how we're going to get along and then we just play the game and we all have fun? Or is it like gravity where it's something that we have discovered and no matter what we try and do to change it, it's not going to change. If you start, if you stop believing in gravity, you're not going to float away. If you start to say gravity is half of the force that it is, you're not going to all of a sudden get lighter. Uh, it doesn't change based on what you think and what you believe. And so we have to ask the same question. Is morality something like gravity that we have discovered? This is the way it is, no matter if we like it or not, or is morality and marriage like monopoly? We get to make it whatever we want. The Christian view says we have a standard for morality. It's God's nature. That which aligns with his nature is good. That which goes against his nature is wrong, is immoral. That is a standard is God's nature revealed to us. I honestly believe that if you take God out of the picture, if you have a secular view, an atheistic view in which there is no God, you don't have objective moral values and duties. You don't have a way in which to say this thing is objectively wrong for all people, all times, and all cultures. You get relativism based on the culture or you get individual relativism based on each person's personal beliefs, but you don't get things that are actually wrong. And I think, last point, I think that is actually more discriminatory than having an objective standard. For this reason, you go to a movie theater and I try to get a student discount, they're not gonna give me one. Why not? I'm not a student. It's a very clear objective standard. Students get discounts, non-students don't. If I wanna go to McDonald's and order a senior citizen coffee, I don't get one. Why not? I'm not a senior citizen. You have to be a senior citizen to get it. It's a very clear objective standard that they have chosen to do. I go to Costco, I get in. Why? I'm a member. If you're not a member, you don't get in. Do you wanna become a member? Go pay for the membership. Very clear standard who gets in and who doesn't. But if you don't have a clear objective standard by which to judge and dis, 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 uh, um, uh, discriminate, tell the difference between, 
Then you say, well, everyone gets a student discount. And then I walk up and say, I would like a student discount. And they go, no, not you. Why not? I just don't like how you're wearing a Maven shirt. What? That's not a good reason. I honestly think that is a secular approach to morality is you don't have an objective standard by which to judge. And then you say, but not you, you have to consent. If you don't consent, you're bad. Says who? That's kind of our opinion or that's our culture's opinion that can change. And so I felt like this was a really good question the atheist was asking, getting me to define what morality is. I felt like it's probably something that might be difficult for some people, especially then bringing up the challenge of the euthyphro dilemma, but taking it one step further and saying, why couldn't God's nature be murder? Why couldn't God's nature be rape? And how that would be, I think, logically impossible for God's nature to be rape uh, because of who God is in his essential attributes, which are good. So those are my thoughts uh, that I have. And now I'm going to be turning to your questions. As I mentioned, I have a few questions that came in on Instagram, uh, one that came in on YouTube. And so I'm going to jump over to those and I encourage you guys to send in those questions. I'm going to do my best to respond. I may not be able to respond to everything. I'm going to give it my shot. I, though I always promise in my live streams, if I can't answer it. Uh, I like to only be stumped by a question one time. And so if I can't give you an answer, uh, then I will do my best to research it and hopefully put out a video here in a little bit to uh, give you guys an answer to it. So I hope everything is still working and it looks like you guys are still watching. Uh, so let's jump in here. First question that came in on Instagram. Hey, Ryan, I have a question on biblical slavery about Exodus 25, 46, 44 to 46, and Exodus 21, 20 and 21. So I have Exodus um, pulled up here. Now, there's a couple things I think that are very uh, important, and it's to make sure we understand context. And we also don't just pull certain verses out, but we look at what other passages of Scripture have to say on this. So let's go to Exodus 25 here really quick. Um, is this going to be? There we go. Exodus 25, oh, what was the exact verse? 44 and 46. It says right here, uh, I am in the middle right there. As for your male and female slaves whom you may have, you may buy male and female slaves from among the nations that are around you. You may also buy from among the strangers or who sojourn with you and their clans that are with you, who have been born in your land, and they may be your property. All right, so this seems... Um, Obviously, very um, interesting. Uh, it seems to point to uh, the Bible pointing out that you can buy slaves uh, from other lands and they are your property. However, um, I would want to push back a little bit and I want to look at a different passage. So this is Leviticus chapter 25. Let's flip over here really quick to Exodus 21. So Exodus remember coming before Leviticus, um, is written here in Exodus 21, verse 16. Notice what it says here. Uh, here it is right there in the middle. Whoever steals a man and sells him, and anyone found in possession of him shall be put to death. Okay. <laughs> so you could maybe draw the conclusion quickly and go, all right, the Bible's confused. Here we have a contradiction. I don't think this is a contradiction. I think this is a difficult uh, uh, way in which we understand the text, trying to just read it at face value. So here we have clearly, it says, look, if you steal a man and sell him, then you will, if, or the person found in possession of him, you should be put to death. So God is commanding the death penalty for buying and selling of slaves, stealing people and selling them against their will, right? 
And here and then in Leviticus chapter 25, it says, well, if you buy someone from another land, then yeah, they're your property. Well, it just said, but if they steal, someone steals this person and sells them and you buy them and you're in possession of them, you should be put to death. Well, here's what I think if you take a look at the context of Leviticus 25 and the other passages in the Old Testament, what you don't have is you don't have slavery that looks like the American slavery in the 1800s, whereas the stealing of people from another land coming and selling them into forced labor. What you have in the Old Testament, and a lot of people will push against this, but if you look at the context, to me, it makes the most sense. What you have in the Old Testament is slavery at the, at the point of, of uh, paying back debt and trying to kind of earn some money, but mainly paying back debt. So now I sign a contract with my school and I say, look, I'm going to work for you for a year. And they say, well, we're going to pay you this much if you work for us that year. So in a sense, I'm kind of bound to the school. Well, similar thing would happen in the Old Testament where people would be in debt. There were not banks to take loans out and then slowly pay them back. So what do you do? You go work for someone and say, hey, I need this loan. I'm willing to work for you for this amount of time. And this is what we see in the Old Testament. And again, if you look at the history, this I think shows clearly that this was taking place. I don't have all the information here, but you can look into this further. This is what is taking place. So we see clearly in scripture passages saying, if you steal someone and sell them or are found in possession of them, you get the death penalty. However, if you buy someone, in the sense that, hey, this person owes a debt, right? And I will buy this person from you. Okay, so hey, they owe you 100 bucks. They owe you $10,000, but you don't need the help anymore. I will buy off that $10,000 from you. So now they're working for me. But we have to recognize a couple of things. One is there's ability for them to be free, but also recognize other Old Testament laws like the year of Jubilee. Right? We see in the Old Testament that God has established things where every seven years and every 70 years, the land gets rest. And every seven years, all debts are made even and people go back to their properties. And so this is not a lifelong indentured servitude into forced labor against your will. This is voluntarily entered into working off to pay a debt. Yes, they bought you in the sense that you, you know you, there's that exchange of money, but you are working to pay off a debt. When the debt is done, you are done. This is not what we see of stealing people and selling them. So um, again, I think this is a short response, uh, but one that um, I think makes a lot of sense to me. It's satisf satisfying to me, and it's not just satisfying because it's a way of arguing around an issue. I think that truly when you look into the history of what was happening, you look into other biblical passages that you take all of scripture into account, not just one verse that looks bad in an English translation, but you look at the original languages, look at what can be uh, or what it could also mean. Um, I think that just simply for me makes a lot of sense. And so I'm satisfied uh, with that. If you're not satisfied with the answer, I encourage you to dig a little bit deeper uh, to go into those questions a little bit more. Uh, next question. Uh, Instagram as well. Again, more Instagram questions. If you have questions here or watching live on YouTube, go over and type those into the live chat. And I'd love to get to those here in a moment. Have you ever struggled a lot with your faith? Um, never. I have never had one single issue. No, of course not. <laughs> um, I do think though that I have an interesting 
perspective in the sense that a lot of apologists get into Christian apologetics because they were greatly challenged. Uh, you hear a lot of stories of, you know, they graduated high school, they went to college, they had a professor that challenged them, that kind of ripped them to shreds, showed them that they didn't know what they believed. They started going into a period of doubt and they found apologetics that was the answer. You also have Christian apologists who uh, were atheists, who were skeptics, who were doubters, who were whatever, and it was the evidence that led them to Christ. And then obviously then they think that is very important and impactful because, hey, that is what led them to Christ. And so that is huge for them as well. Uh-oh. I don't know why that setting just went off. Okay, go away. Sorry about that, guys. Um, <laughs> live stream. Um, that wasn't me. To, for me, though, I, I realized many times I didn't understand much about my faith that I should have known at different periods. Um, I thought I should have known my faith a lot better than I did. Uh, but for me, it was actually graduating college with my degree in theology, in religion, and biblical studies, and then trying to work with students. And I started teaching at a school overseas, and I started working with students and just following student culture. And to me, it was the statistic that 60 to 80% of students were walking away from the church. And I went, I, I was shocked by that. And I went, if, if 60 to 80% are walking away from the church, then we are doing something wrong. What is it? And I came to the conclusion, I, I started thinking this through and talking with people. And I went, I think that students don't understand what they believe and they don't understand why they believe it. And I probably thought that because I didn't necessarily understand what I believe and maybe why I believed it either because I had never encountered apologetics, the branch of the, the study of Christianity and why we believe what we believe. And it wasn't until my brother actually introduced me to William Lane Craig, I started watching his debates and realizing I don't really know this stuff a lot. So I didn't get into apologetics because I had a serious period where I struggled with my faith. There's definitely times in my life where I was not um, on fire. There's times where I was not doing lots of devotionals. There's times where I, um, <coughs> you could say, uh, I was more distant. I think that's just a natural kind of path of life. It's hard to stay uh, super pumped up all the time. Um, and so I think that happens with everybody, but there's never a time where I really doubted it. There's never a time where I denied God, where I walked away, um, nothing like that. I always knew that God was important, but I will say this. Um, it was when I started studying apologetics. It was when I started uh, opening my eyes or, or, or being aware of the, of the, 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 the ways in which people are able to look at the world around us and understand worldviews and how science and philosophy and history and archaeology all point to God, that my mind just exploded. I went, whoa, this is amazing. This is so cool. I want to learn more. It was kind of like a student uh, a few years ago told me at a camp, hey, I've been a Christian for about two years and I know everything. And it wasn't a, a I know everything, uh, I'm super smart, and I don't need this whole Christian thing anymore. I honestly believe it was because the things that she was being taught in church were already on repeat. She already kept hearing the same thing over and over. And I realized we, are, I think, are doing a disaver, disservice to people in giving them the impression that Christianity is a shallow faith. I had William Lane Craig on a few weeks ago. And, you know, I thought he spent 12 years studying the relationship between God and time. If he can spend 12 years studying that before being able to have a grasp of his view on God and time, yeah, I have a lot more to do. <laughs> I'm nowhere near it. 
And obviously this is what I learned is as I, as I went into my college and I studied, you know, had a biblical studies, religion, theology degree and realized I know nothing. And then I got my master's in apologetics and realized even more that I don't know very much. And which is also the reason why I have this channel is to help give you guys good biblical answers to the best of my ability and bring on people that are way smarter than me to help you better understand Christianity and the Christian worldview and how it applies to every day of your life. And hopefully if that's something that you want to keep learning, you subscribe and you like the video. But this is what challenged me. This is what motivated me to be, be to think, man, I claim to love God and I claim to take him seriously, but I really don't know that much about him. And I can't defend why I believe in him. Now, let me say one more thing about this. And I think uh, this is a kind of a story that I, I think I created last summer um, up at Alpine Camp. But when... I think that a lot of students in particular are very bored with Christianity, that maybe struggle in their faith because they don't know very much about it. And, and it's like this. If I asked probably many of you guys to sit down and watch hockey with me, right? And I, sh I shared this story at the camp last summer, so I can say it again. If my wife wants to walk in right now, she can come join me and tell you about it herself. But when we started dating, I'm a huge hockey fanatic. And we first started dating, she would sit down and watch the games with me because she wanted to be with me. She wanted to spend time with me, but hockey didn't make sense. And it was boring. <laughs> She's kind of over it pretty quick. But then Colorado Avalanche, the best team in the NHL, right? I better not hear anything about that in the comments. No, I'm just kidding. Um, the Avalanche made the playoffs and she started watching more games with me. And if you know playoff hockey, it's like every other day there's another game and games last like two hours. And she started watching a lot of hockey and asking a lot of questions. And the more that she started asking questions, the more she started learning about the game, she became more excited to actually watch it. She started knowing the players. Oh, that's so-and-so. Oh man, she kind of knew what was a good move and what wasn't a good move. And when she kind of knew the objective, the goals, why the refs were blowing the whistle and why everything was happening. And it became a lot more interesting. That's the reason why I don't like going to like museums. I don't find paintings that interesting, like art museums. And someone who's a painter, they look at that and they go, look at the shadowing, look at the brush strokes, look at how they did this, look at how they made this pop. And I go, it's a barn. <laughs> cool uh, barn. Um, I don't see it because I don't have a deep knowledge and understanding of paintings. And I brought up the baseball analogy. I was a pitcher. I can watch pitchers throw the ball and I can see how that ball moves. And it amazes me. And other people go, he threw the ball and the guy hit it. Not that exciting. But when you realize how hard it is to get the ball to move in the way that he moved it, that blows your mind sometimes. I honestly believe that when I struggled with my faith, when, I, when other people are bored with the faith, I think a huge part of it I think a big part is sin. I think a big part is friend influence and stuff. But I also think a big, huge part of it is that we simply just don't have a depth of knowledge of who God is. Our knowledge of him is very surf superficial, surface level, just like maybe my view of art or other people's view of hockey or baseball or whatever it may be, like cricket. I can't stand watching it. It's so boring because I don't get anything and it turns off within two minutes. I try and it's over. When we take time to truly dig deep into who God is, what scripture says, how science and technology and, and everything is pointing to him and how God is the grounding for all moral decisions and everything, that should excite us. We go, it doesn't matter where I look. I'm going to find something that points to God and how the Christian worldview relates to it. This is awesome. This is exciting. And that's my encouragement to you. If you are finding yourself in a difficult place, to continue to dig deep into who Jesus is. Jesus is amazing.
what he did for us is amazing. If the gospel doesn't grab you and shake you and bring you to almost a place of tears, which is rare if you keep hurting it over and over and over again, then I think we don't truly recognize the depth of meaning and significance in our lives that Jesus Christ and the gospel has for us. It's amazing. So I haven't had a huge point where I struggled and walking away from the faith. But to me, it was more realizing students don't understand it. I don't understand it. Christians are, I think, have a difficulty understanding it. I want to try and help people better understand the Christian faith. So that's what encouraged me um, during that time. All right, again, this is my last question from Instagram. So again, in live chat people, send in those questions. How do we talk to a Satanist about God? Now, I had to look uh, this up because, and of course, I think I went, there we go. Um, I've never talked to a Satanist. I have had Satanists come share their testimony um, uh, of walking away. Uh, one guy in particular was a Satanist in the Dominican Republic. He became a good friend of the missionary that I was working with. I had him come to my youth group that I was working with while I was down in that country. And for him and for others that I've heard, it's just a radical understanding of who Jesus is. Um, what you don't have to do is you don't have to, uh, what's nice, you don't have to like convince them of a supernatural world. They're already kind of, they're already convinced that they think Satan is real. Um, but it's, it's pointing to who Jesus is. So I actually Google searched, maybe it's a little bit cheating, but, um, Google search, uh, how to evangelize, how to talk to a Satanist about Jesus, how to share the gospel with a Satanist. Now, um, what this article says is here are some things that you can admire about the person, uh, that they believe in a spiritual realm. That's good. Um, that they have an unflinching boldness uh, in expressing their beliefs. Generally, Satanists are very expressive and very committed to what they are doing. Um, even when their beliefs and their practices are very unpopular, they have that boldness, which, hey, Christians maybe can learn a little bit about that boldness and stepping out even when Christianity is not popular. Um, they do believe in this idea of Satan and that he's in this cosmic battle to try to win souls. That's a good thing. That's definitely true. And um, how uh, our spiritual beliefs influence how we choose to live our lives. Uh, that is something that they recognize. And so that's good. But one thing I appreciated about this article of how to share the gospel with a Satanist is it gave a lot of really good questions that I think we should be asking anybody and anyone that we're trying to share the gospel with. For example, what's your spiritual background? Obviously, you're finding the Satanist in a very interesting spiritual place of worshiping Satan. Now there's different types of Satanists, so they don't always do it the same way. There's actually satanic Bibles they could be reading, or maybe they're just very indulgent in sin and, and kind of committed to Satan in that sense of like a dark demonic side. It can be very different on who the Satan is that you're Satanist is that you're talking to, but there's definitely this idea of, Hey, what's their spiritual background? Um, how, why is it that they have kind of turned in this way? What influenced them in their decision to become a Satanist? This is a question that I ask Mormon friends. This is the question that I ask uh, Jehovah's Witnesses. Like, why, why are you a Jehovah's Witness? Why are you a Mormon? What was it about this religion or this belief system that drew you to it? Uh, and again, this is going to be huge in helping you understand what was attractive about it that you maybe need to respond to. Uh, another question. What excites you the most about being a Satanist? Why is this something that you have devoted your life to? What is exciting about it? And then what aspects of Satanism makes you the most uncomfortable? Now, this is where it kind of gets maybe uncomfortable for them as they start sharing what's uncomfortable about their religion or their belief with you. 
Then you kind of get to Jesus. Have you considered the possibility that Jesus was just as opposite to the religious establishment as you are? All right. So if they're like anti-religion, you can be like, well, Jesus was kind of anti-religion in a sense of like, here's the established religion, how they're telling everybody they have to live and practice. And Jesus is like, no, hold on a second. Now, again, I disagree with the people like Christianity is not a religion. It's a relationship. No, it is a religion. Um, but Jesus was very different and he was against the way religion was being practiced at that time. Uh, and so, hey, maybe they're against religion in this you know, way that you have to do X, Y, and Z. Uh, and it's very kind of um, uh, legalistic approach. And you say, hey, Jesus was against the legalism as well. Maybe find some similar grounds there. Next one. Do you ever feel judged by others for rejecting the existence of God? If so, how does that make you feel? So if this Satanist says, I believe the Satan exists, but there is no God, kind of, again, helping understand uh, what they feel about things. Have you ever considered the possibility that you could be wrong, that there is a God who loves you? Do you think there's a difference between religion and a relationship with God? Why or why not? So again, it's not saying Christianity is just a relationship, not a religion, but hey, what's the difference between having an actual relationship with Jesus? Um, God is a father rather than just a, a list of rules that we have to do. And then finally, has anyone ever explained the gospel to you? Now, this is um, uh, from the website Dare to Share, how to share the gospel with a Satanist. And so, again, I, I haven't had tons of personal interaction with Satanists to give you all the things that they believe and what they do. But I think there is a lot of good starting ground. Um, and there's a lot of good places that we can kind of go where we can say, hey, look, this is great that you believe this and this and this. And these things are true. But what if we come back to who Jesus Christ is? Um, and now obviously they're probably going to be anti-Jesus <laughs> because Jesus is the light. Jesus is the truth. And so trying to find that way to them. But what I found, again, is Jesus is powerful. The Holy Spirit is powerful, opening people's eyes. And, and the, a couple of Satanists that I have talked to uh, that were Christians at that time, um, that was a big part of their testimony of being presented the true Jesus, the true gospel. And that was a huge impact uh, for them. All right. That was it for Instagram. I have one question from YouTube. Um, and again, again, one more encouragement. Those of you guys watching, you better type in those live chat questions uh, because our time is running out. Uh, so here's the question from YouTube um, from uh, Marina. Or, yeah, I I'm sorry, Marina. I always, for some reason, say that. See that and think something different. But anyways, uh, she says, I watched a video a while back about a grandma who was in a coma for six weeks and was totally unresponsive on life support. Her family had brought her home to die, but instead she woke up and recovered. And the family was saying how this was a miracle. I saw an interesting comment. So I'm assuming, yeah, this atheist. So didn't God put these people in this situation in the first place? So then why pray to, a, why pray to and thank God for the recovery if it was God that caused and allowed it to happen? I'd be upset with God if it was my family. Alrighty. So again, wow, when we are talking about the problem of evil, this is a difficult, difficult problem. As uh, many people, it, this has a lot of emotional uh, weight to it, as well as it's just, it's hard to give a satisfying response. And I just put out a video actually of a better question uh, when asking, why does God allow evil? Rather than asking, why is this happening to me? We should be asking, what can I do about it? What can I do now? And you can go back and that video was just the last one I put out and you can see that. But often when people say, well, why does God allow this evil? My first question to them and what I encourage people to ask is, why this question? Of all the questions to ask God, why this one? Because if their answer is, well, my, excuse me, my grandma just passed away. 
Uh, my parents just got a divorce. My best friend just died. That person needs love. That person needs a hug. That person needs someone just to care for them and to listen to them. They don't need an intellectual answer for why God is allowing evil in their life. However, if they say, hey, I just saw this video. That's what this sounds like it's like. They saw this video and the atheist brought up this comment. What would you say? Um, it doesn't seem like there's a connection. I saw this video about a grandma or they were saying, hey, I watched Batman versus Superman and Lex Luthor talks about, uh, you know, if God is all powerful, then he could stop all evil. And if he's all loving, he would stop all evil, but there is evil. So God's either not all powerful, not all loving, or if not, neither, he doesn't exist. Um, then now you give an intellectual answer. So a couple things. First question that was asked here. Okay. So the grandma's in a coma. Um, and she woke up, recovered. The family said it was a miracle and they prayed and thank God for it. Um, now, uh, first of all, kind of taking a step back, I got a question just this week, um, on, uh, Facebook, Facebook question got sent in and it was, uh, my view on miracles. I personally am skeptical of miracle stories. I am not a cessationist. I do believe miracles happen today. I do not think that they stopped in the, in the New Testament. I absolutely believe that God is working and God can do miracles and he does do miracles. The problem is, is I think when Christians quickly jump to the conclusion that it was a miracle, when I think an atheist would say, well, hold on a second. Um, so your grandma's in a coma. She hooked up to machines. Yes. Are machines keeping her alive? Yes. Are they giving her medicine? Yes. Well, then she woke up. Yeah. Oh, why miracle? It sounds like you were just doing all the things to help her out. So I think, you know, miracle by definition, I think it is a supernatural act by God. And so there are lots of things that we pray about and happen, and it's hard to know exactly if it's a miracle or not. And so just so you know me, I'm just, I'm a little bit more skeptical. When I hear this is a miracle, I go, mm, was it? Uh, can, is there any way to show it? Sometimes, look, there's amazing ways. Uh, one reason for that is, I, I don't know the perfect way of saying this, but I don't think that I need my own personal miracle in order to be convinced of God or even to share about God. I think if I need to have my own personal miracle to happen in my life to be convinced or to, to show someone else, look, God did this miracle in my life, therefore you should believe. To me, it seems like it's saying the resurrection of Jesus is not enough. I want to say that the miracle of the resurrection is enough. That is sufficient to show that Jesus is God, that Christianity is true, and that I should trust in him with my life. Even if nothing miraculous happens in my life, that's sufficient for me. Uh, so maybe I have a, a higher standard. I don't know, but that's kind of where I initially stand on this. But this person says, didn't God put these people in the situation in the first place? Not necessarily. Um, goes on, why pray and thank God for the recovery if it was God that caused or allowed it to happen? Now, I think those are two very different things. You can't just put a little slash and say cause slash allowed it to happen. God causing these things to happen. I don't think God is causing them to happen. God didn't force your grandma into a coma. God didn't make you sick. God is not sitting there making everyone get sick from the coronavirus and saying, ha ha, look at this. I'm doing this for a good reason. I don't think he's necessarily causing those things to happen. Now, God is behind it in the sense that he did curse the ground. He did create the world in a way that these things take place. So God is responsible. He's not off the hook. He absolutely is allowing these things to happen. Now, as I said in my last video I just put out, can I point to every single instance of evil in every single person's life and say, here's why God allowed this to happen? No, I can't. And often, if it is something personally that is happening to you, there's never a satisfying response to where you hear, here's a reason why God might allow this to happen. You go, that, that satisfies me. Nah, it's still difficult. 
I do think that there are reasons that God does allow evil. I wrote an article, 10 reasons why God may allow suffering. I don't have it in the description below, but I will post it there if you're watching this after the live stream. But I do absolutely think God is allowing it to happen. But let me change the scenario for a second and ask the question, well, what would God have to do in order to stop this from happening? Well, we often say, well, God should get rid of X disease, but then that makes something else the worst disease. So again, like you, you think about this idea that, that, that God is not the author or creator necessarily of evil. Evil is an absence of good, but there are good things that God created that do cause evil. Like water is good and necessary, but people drown. Gravity is necessary for our life to exist, but it causes some people to fall and get hurt. Cars have created a wonderful way of life that where we can get around very quickly, but people get into car accidents and die. And so we have to ask the question of, okay, well, what would God have to do in order to keep this from happening? And then you turn to, okay, God could lock you in a completely sanitary padded jail cell, <laughs> or maybe you don't want to have that picture, padded bedroom. Um, and so it has to be padded so you can't stub your foot or hit something on the corner, you know, and, and get hurt in that way. And it has to be completely sanitary because you, you obviously can't have any things that can grow mold or anything like that because then you get sick from that. And then you have to ask, is that really a better life? And I don't think it is. And so I would turn it to a, a parent and child situation. God is a father, we are his children. So think about this. Um, if a parent has a child, they give them freedom. Hey, you can go out. Now, obviously, there's some restrictions based on the age, like don't go play in the streets, right? There's some ways in which we try to protect our children, but we recognize locking our children to a heavy kitchen appliance or locking them in the bedroom so that they can never leave and putting them in a little bubble is not actually better for them. We do expose them to some harms in order to give them wonderful things and to bring happiness and blessings and things into their life. And so a parent says, look, I'm going to allow you to do these things because these things are going to produce a greater joy. Then when we make decisions or when corruption of the world or other people's free will choices and we get hurt and then our parent comes to the rescue and rescues us, should I not say thank you to that parent? Of course we do. So it's like saying, look, this person, God has created them. God has given them uh, free will. They've gone throughout their life. Something evil happened because of the corruption of sin in this world and everything that has gone on. She's in a coma. I don't know why. She then comes out of the coma. The people thank God. He says, why would you thank God? Why would you pray to God and thank him for allowing this to happen? I'd be upset with God. Well, there are some parents that we are upset with because what they are allowing their kids to do is ridiculous. But there's some times where a kid jumps off a swing. They're doing everything perfectly fine and they stub their toe. And you don't get mad at the parent. You just take care of the kid. And I think that God is a God who, when he comes to our rescue, we got ourselves. we can't forget this, we got ourselves into the problem that we are in. It was original sin. It was Adam and Eve eating of the fruit that created the problem that we now have today. We got ourselves into the problem and God is so loving. God is so loving that he doesn't leave us in the problem. He came down to earth, Jesus Christ, took on human flesh, died for us to rescue us from the problem that we created. Why would we be upset with God about that? He's given us a beautiful world to live in. He's given us things to enjoy. He's given us eyes to see and ears to hear beautiful sounds and taste to taste beautiful food. I just prayed about that over my dinner tonight. God, thank you for taste buds to enjoy this delicious pad thai. We are so blessed. 
And then we often do something wrong. We misuse a good part of God's creation, get sick, get hurt, and then we get mad at God for it rather than saying, God, thank you so much. And when people say, God, thank you, and he says, why would you thank God? He allowed it to happen. Yeah, in a sense, he did allow it to happen. But it was my choice that I did something or it was the effects of brokenness in the world, which we do learn from. And then God comes to our rescue and we say, thank you for rescuing me. God didn't have to take her out of the coma or whatever ended up happening. And so we thank God for those things. Well, that is my questions that have come in. I hope this has been a help to you guys. I hope this has been encouraging. I hope that you have learned something. That is my goal with this channel, for you to learn deeper issues, deeper questions, uh, deeper things about the Christian worldview, to have a better understanding about God, to think deeply. I, it doesn't matter if you're a Christian or you're an atheist. I think we need to be thinking deeply about this. As, as I want to understand the atheist perspective, I want to stand the Mormon perspective, I want to stand the Islamic perspective, and I want to understand them correctly and rightly and truly. I hope that even if you're not a Christian, that you understand the Christian view truly so that when we actually have conversations that we can think deeply about these, accurately representing both sides and really coming down to try to figure out what is actually true. So hopefully uh, this has been helpful to you to think deeper about the Christian worldview. Again, this is your last chance to send in questions. If you have any, um, comment those in. I'd love to, to discuss those with you. But again, if this has been enjoyable to you, if you have learned something more, if, this, if you've appreciated this, please subscribe. And don't forget that future interviews are with guests that are way smarter than me that can help you understand deeper parts about Christianity and the Christian life as well as I give you the chance to ask them questions, to interact with them, and to learn from them. People that you would never probably have the chance to interact with. Maybe you get their book. Maybe you could sit in one of their college classes. But here you can ask questions uh, live on YouTube to them. So if you want to have that opportunity, please subscribe. Uh, please like it. If you've enjoyed this, you thought it was beneficial, share it with a family member or friend. I'm going to timestamp all the questions that came in so you can click right to them. And finally, you guys don't have to uh, contribute financially. I love doing this. I love putting out, for putting out for free, but it does cost money. And so if you do want to give back, there is a Patreon link below that you can click on and you can support. Um, I would appreciate that. Again, you don't have to. This is so much fun. I love doing this for you guys. Uh, but that is an option if that is something that you want to do to give back. So I'm going to sit here for just a moment longer and see if there's anything else that comes in. Um, about 15 of you. I hope that you've enjoyed this. And I think we are wrapping up. I am all out of things to say. I think I said everything I want to say. So with that in five, four, three, two, one. All right. I think we're done. Guys, have an awesome weekend. If you're a student, have so much fun. Go back to school. Do well. Get good grades. Listen to your teachers. It's a good thing to do, especially if they tell you good things. See you guys later. Come back again for more short videos and more interviews with experts in Christian worldview. It's been fun. See you guys later. God bless. Have a wonderful rest of your day and a great weekend. See ya. Won't hesitate to follow.